Dennis Kinlaw was the president of Asbury College for 18 years, leading the school through the 1970 revival. In 1983, he founded the Francis Asbury Society to promote the message of scriptural holiness. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Turn with me in your Bible to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 1 of that great epistle. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead through whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Now skip down with me to verse 15. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile, in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And then follows the most sordid paragraph in all of the Scripture. Will you bow your heads with me today? Our Father, it is not a human word that we need today, it is a divine word. And only you can give that. And so we look to you. We thank you that you're the one more eager to give than we are to receive. So give to us your word today. For us, individually and corporately. And we will give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. It was back during the Christmas vacation this year. I found myself talking with a young man who is a senior in another university. 
He is one whom I have had periodic conversations with across his life. And so when we talk, we talk rather openly and rather intimately. He said to me, he said, I have a question. He said, I've come to believe that there is a unity to all knowledge and that it is reflected in the fact that if you take any discipline, any discipline, history, literature, science, math, if you take any academic discipline and push it far enough, you will find yourself in philosophy. And I thought, he's thinking. I said, yes, that's right. That's the reason that the terminal degree in every discipline, no matter what the discipline, originally or earlier was a Ph.D., a doctorate in philosophy. Because to be a master of any discipline, one needs to be, in a sense, a bit of a philosopher. And then he said, but if you push philosophy far enough, you will find yourself in theology, won't you? And I sort of grinned to myself, and I said, yes, that's right. You will find yourself in theology. And if you push theology far enough, he said, you have to have a center, don't you? I said, that's right. You have to have a center. Well, he said, that's what I'd like to give myself to. I'd like to locate that center, know it, and give myself wholly to it. Now, the interesting thing is that conversation meant far more to me than just the telling of it would reflect to you, because I'd had another conversation just four years before when he was a freshman in university, and I remember how that conversation went. There was a dull glaze in his eye and a bored tone in his voice, and every move he made you knew was an effort, and what his body told you was, his question was, is it really worth the energy? And then, who cares anyway? And in our conversation this time, there was a light in his eyes, there was an eagerness in his face, and there was an intensity in his voice. And I knew he had changed. I thought he's different. He sees. And what he sees is transforming him. Because the reality is that we do have to have a center. And whatever that center is, it will determine who we are. But there is a center that all of us are supposed to seek and to know. The true center. You see, if you do not know what the center is, you will have no understanding of how things relate to each other. Because if it's really the center, it is the determinant for all other relationships. Now, it is knowing the center that enables us to see purpose and meaning in the things that make up our life. If you do not know the center, you will have no key that will be adequate to explain all of the mysteries, and all of the problems that face you in human existence. Ultimate meaning will never open for you if you miss that center, that key. 
Now, if you're a Christian today, you believe, or are supposed to believe, just as I'm supposed to believe, that we have a center, a key, and that that center is found in Jesus Christ. It is revealed in him, and he came to make it known to us. That's why we have chapel at Asbury, and that's why it's in the middle of the academic day. You see, uh, chapel for us is not a tack-on. It is not a tradition. It is not a slight tipping of our hat to God. It is, in fact, central to the academic program here because it's in chapel that we learn the why of the history that we study, the science that we study, the literature that we study, the computers that we work. Everybody has to take a philosophy course if he's to be truly educated, and we think everybody ought to go to chapel. Now, that's the kind of thinking that Paul is dealing with in the first chapter of the book of Romans. He doesn't state the questions the way I have stated them, but rather than state them, he spells out his answers to some of these questions. And he gives the answers to us as one who had found the center. You will find that he says, I found Christ, or rather, he found me, And when I found him, I found the keys to three important problems in human life. The first one is, he says, when I found him, I found out who I am. Because Paul still exists. He found that uh, in meeting Jesus Christ on that Damascus road, he turned and said to Jesus, who are you? And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And when he walked away, he had been transformed enough that there was a double revelation that had taken place. He knew the key to all reality, and in knowing that key, he now had come to know himself. I'd like to ask you, who do you think you are? And uh, in what terms do you define your own identity? In what terms does your self-consciousness reflect itself to you? There's a story told supposedly about a German philosopher. It probably is apocryphal. My memory is that it was supposed to have been about Schopenhauer. That one night he was in a beer garden, perplexed by some of the problems of life and of thought. And he was so disheveled in appearance and so frightful that there the... uh, Bouncer came to him and said, who are you? To which Schopenhauer replied, would to God that I knew. Now Paul said, I met him. And when I met him, I found out who I am. It's interesting how he demonstrates that in the New Testament. I missed it for years. You know that letters were written differently in that day than the way we write them now. Because when we write a letter, we write the name of the person to whom we are writing at the beginning. And the signature comes at the end. But in Paul's day, the self-identification always came bang, first thing. And so you will find in beginning the first letter to the Corinthians, he says, Paul, I want you to know who's writing. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Second Corinthians 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Galatians 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Ephesians 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus. And so he goes in 13 letters. No, in two of the letters he's different. In the letter to the Thessalonians, the first and the second, these were people whom he knew extremely well, and they were the first letters as far as we know that he wrote. And he simply began them by saying, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. But the other eleven, he begins and he uses three words to define himself. One of them is, he defines himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. He defines himself, if you will take the literal meaning of that in Greek in that day, a slave of Jesus Christ. And the other expression is, an apostle. Now, isn't it interesting that his self-definition did not start with himself? His self-definition started with another, with Christ. Now, uh, he said, I not only found out who I am, that I am only know myself and who I am when I am in relation to him, I found out what my purpose for existence is. And every person needs to know why he exists. Human beings are purposeful creatures. There's a Hebrew expression in the Old Testament in the Psalms about us that says, we are persons who lake who walk. And that is a Semitic expression for our goal-orientedness. You and I are supposed to be going someplace. And that's why we hate dead-end streets. We have to have a reason to exist. Now, I'm convinced that the reason you have to have a reason and I have to have a reason to exist is because there is a reason. We are made for that reason and we will find our purpose when we find it. Why am I here? Paul said, I'm an apostle. Now, that's an interesting term because you know enough probably to know that it comes from the Greek verb apostello, which means I send. So Paul's understanding of himself and his purpose was that he was a sent one. Now, in order to be a sent one, you have to have three parties, don't you? You have to have the one sending. You have to have the one that to whom he is sent. And you have to have the one who is sent. Paul says, I'm the middle figure in that. I'm the one who's sent, and I'm sent from Christ, and I'm sent unto you. So it's interesting that he finds his identity in his relationship to Christ. He finds his reason for existing in relation to Christ. Now, uh, he expressed that in a magnificent text in 2 Corinthians that I missed for a long time because the context didn't interest me. It was about whether you ought to eat meat that's been offered in a pagan temple. And that didn't interest me, but stuck in the middle of it, do you know what Paul says? There are other people who worship many gods, and they have many centers to their existence. But for us, there is only one God, the Father, out of whom all things are, 
And we are for him. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. So Paul, notice the prepositions. They tell the story, don't they? He says, we come out of the Father. We come from him. We uh, live through Jesus Christ. And he says, we live unto him, for him. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is a person who knows his existence comes from God and he lives through him and he lives for him. But he not only found who he was and what his purpose was, that his purpose was in terms of the purpose of Christ, but he found out how big that purpose was. Now, at this point, I find myself without adequate language to express what I really want to say. So let me bungle my way through these next few moments and you make it, you interpret it more accurately than I can say. Because you see, basically what he was saying was, if you will read the text, in the surface of life, there are little tents around the margin and then there is the big tent. And he says, you are made for the big tent. So don't play your life in one of the smaller, marginal ones. You see, Paul had been living for Judaism. He was a Jew. And he found his identity in terms of his ethnic character and relationship. A Jew of Jews. And so his business was to win the battle for Judaism. And then one day he met Christ. And when he met Christ, Christ said, I made you for something bigger than that. Because Judaism doesn't encompass the whole of human existence. And I'm the God of all creation. And I made you to be a part of my eternal purpose. And my eternal purpose is universal. It is as broad as existence. And you are not to be made for a part. You are to be made for the whole. And so he became the apostle to the Gentiles, and we are the beneficiaries of that. Now, one of the things that uh, I like in that is, I think it is very clear that if you don't know the key, if you don't know the center, you'll spend your life living for a part. You'll decide how big that part is. But God made us to be a part, to live for the whole. Because we are a part of something infinitely bigger. We are a part of that historic program that started in the mind of God before creation will culminate in the return of Christ and in the establishment of His eternal kingdom and family. And the key to it is found in Bethlehem's manger and Calvary's cross and the empty tomb. Because you see, in that span of what, 33 years, whatever it was, eternity broke into time, and infinity broke into the finite, and there was a glimpse given of what all of existence is about. And we have the key 
And we have it in Jesus Christ. So God said to Paul, Judaism isn't big enough for you. Good news is that you're to be a part of something infinitely greater. Now, you know, I had a sense that something like that had happened to my young friend. Because of the eagerness that was in his face, the light that was in his eyes, the intensity in his voice, he was future-oriented. He was not looking for a way out. He was looking for a chance to encompass a world, a universe, in the purposes of God. And you know, that always happens. There used to be an old man who walked this campus. His name was E.A. Siemens. His son pastored the Methodist Church here for 20-some years. Another son taught in Asbury Theological Seminary for many years. I knew Dr. Siemens. He'd walk across the campus and the atmosphere would change. When he was 90 years of age, he'd spend his life until he retired in India. And then after he retired, he spent all of his time raising money to build churches in India. I'm sure he built more churches for India than anybody in human history. And when he was 90, he was saying, can I go back just one more time? So he flew back to India, 90 years of age, got desperately ill. And so his son David flew over to see him. And when he flew... When he was able to get to him, he sat down next to old Doc Seaman's bed and looked him in the face. And he said, Dad, you can go now. And the 90-some-year-old man turned over and went to heaven. But you know, there is something incredible about what happens when a person finds out who he is, what his purpose is, and that it is to be a part of God's eternal purposes. We have something to live for and to give ourselves wholly to. And so Paul writes to the Romans. You know why he wants to come visit the Romans? Because that's halfway to Spain. And you know what Spain is? Spain is the rim of the known world in that day. And if there is any part of the world out there that Paul hasn't reached, his eyes are on it because it belongs to Christ and he is to be a part of winning it for Christ. And so he says, I want to come visit you. And the reason I want to come is I'd like to have some fruit among you and some fellowship, but then I want to move on to what is beyond. And that's the way he died. Okay. But now what happens if you miss the key? Paul says there are three things that happen to you if you miss the key. First, there is a darkness that comes over your reason. Now, what greater gift has God given to you than the capacity to reason? Because, you see, it's with our reason that we make sense out of the data that life brings to us. But if we don't know where the center is, our reason will be used, not as an instrument to bring us to truth, but ultimately we'll use our reasons to justify where we are and to justify what we are doing. And rationalization is an incredibly wrong use of reason. So he says, if you don't know the center, your reasoning will be, and the Greek word is futile. It will have no fruit. It will be useless. 
But he says there's a second thing that happens to you. When you don't know the center and don't let him be the center, your appetites take over and they rule you. And that's the reason that the closing part of the first chapter of the book of Romans is the most sordid chapter in all of Scripture. Because Paul knew that when it's left to you and me, and the restraining power of the love of God is withdrawn from our lives, we are capable of any evil because the forces in life for us now are no longer centripetal, but they're centrifugal, and they will blow us apart, and we will use one another. And there is no greater sin than for one person to use another. And he says, as John said, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life will control you. But if you get the center you will find that that very lust can be turned into love. And the lust that would defile you and, and, and use others causes you to passionately seek after Him. Because you know that your fulfillment is not in us. Your fulfillment is in Him. That's the reason that the standards for Christians are so high. Can a person really live there? You know, we've lived through a sordid period in American history this year. Now, you see, the very lust that drives us for sex or for place, for ego, or for wealth, material things, that is the wind that is supposed to fill our sails and drive us to the one for whom we are made. But if we do not know the one for whom we are made, that very wind will drive us to live for our appetites and our passions. But that's the holiness message that you hear. It is possible to be free. And it is possible to live in love like that. And love is not lust, and lust is not love. Now, the third thing Paul says is, I've learned that if you don't get him to the center, your conduct will reflect. And that's what we get in the close of that first chapter of Romans. As I said, it is the most sordid chapter in all of Scripture. And when Christ is not the center, you don't even have to be a pagan to be guilty of sin. Look at evangelical leadership in the United States in our generation. You see, it seems to me that we have developed in America an evangelicalism in which we would like for Christ to be on board because we may need Him. But we're not at all sure that we want Him to be the center. So, we choose our own career and then say, I want to be a lawyer. I'd like to be a Christian lawyer. This girl, I like her. I'd like for her to be my wife. Lord, will you bless our wedding and our home? We want him on board as a passenger. 
we're a little afraid to face life without him, and we would not want to be listed among those hostile to him. But do you know there is no future for the one for whom he is not the center and the controlling center? If you read the Greek New Testament, you will find that Paul says, I am a doulos. Some translations call it servant, translated servant, can be translated slave of Jesus Christ. I don't know much about slavery, but I know enough to know that a slave in the morning does not decide what he's going to do. He turns to his owner. And his owner tells him and gives him his assignment. He does not decide where he is going to be that day. He turns to his owner. And his owner tells him where he will spend that day. He does not decide with whom he will spend that day. He turns to his owner. And his owner decides with whom he will spend that day. And he does not determine how he will spend that day. His life is not his own. Now, you know, the incredible contradiction in Scripture is that when you become his slave, you find you like it. You find that it's the thing for which you were made. No, it's not the thing for which you were made. He's the one for which you were made. You know, I hear people say, God has a wonderful plan for your life. You don't want to miss it. I want to tell you something infinitely better than that. He's better than your plan for your life. And if you get Him, you'll find the right plan. But you see, we've tried to build a halfway house. And so American evangelicalism in 50 years has had the center stage in America while America collapsed morally. And the world into which you step is a radically more hostile world to Christianity than the one into which I step. And do you know why? Because of the basic holiness message that we must be all his and he must be Lord has been lost. Let me urge you. It's not enough to have him as a passenger. The reality is, you need to be a passenger on his boat. And I need to be a passenger on his boat, not to have him on mine. Are you a passenger on his boat, or is he a passenger on yours today?